Thank you to the Wood and the Smith family for their beautiful introits. And I welcome you tonight in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you ready to receive that which he has to bring to us? I'll introduce our... Uh, Men up front with me, on my very left, is Luke Richmond. He's a deacon from Buckner Restoration Branch. To my immediate right here is Brett Stevenson. He's an elder from New Jerusalem, and he'll bring broken word tonight. And to the right of that is my grandson, Isaac uh, Williams, and he's a deacon at uh, Buckner Restoration Branch also. My name is Harry Williams. I'm an elder at Buckner also. I want to read a scripture for you, going along with the day's theme. Keep all the commandments and covenants by which you are bound, and I will cause the heavens to shake for your good, and shake, and Satan shall. Sorry, keep forgetting to put these on. Keep all the commandments and covenants but you're bound, and I will cause the heaven to shake for your good, and Satan shall tremble. And Zion shall rejoice upon the hills and flourish. Israel shall be saved in mine own due time. And by the keys which I have given shall be led, they be led, and no more be confounded at all. Lift up your hearts and be glad. Your redemption draweth nigh. Fear not, little folk. The kingdom is yours until I come. And behold, I come quickly. Even so, amen. We'll begin our service tonight with the singing of hymn number 66, after which uh, Isaac will bring the invocation. 
hymn number 66. Father, I thank you for giving us the ability to be here today. I'd ask that you send your spirit to be with us and to be with Brett and with all the other men up here and also everyone here on the campgrounds. We will feel it always. I thank you for the opportunity you've given us to be here and to commune with fellow saints, to draw apart from the world. It's so different here. 
thank you so much for that. In Jesus Christ's name, I pray, amen. Good evening, brothers and sisters. It's uh, always a joy for my family and I to join you here at the Buckner Reunion. We've had lots of good fellowship over the years and worship and instruction. It's just a, a great blessing to our family to, uh, to join with you this week. It's also a, a humbling privilege to uh, share with you this evening in the uh, ministry that we are uh, partaking of here in the worship service. And I'm really appreciative of the the theme for today, Fear Not. Very short, very concise, and very close to my heart as well. So I'm excited to share on this topic with you. I was talking to Joe ahead of time, and I said, I don't know if this will confirm the things that you shared in your class today or be completely different, and perhaps it will be a little of both, but we will see. And uh, either way, I look forward to uh, sharing on this topic. For an opening passage of scripture or scripture setting here for the message, I'd like to take from the theme, one of the theme scriptures that has been um, suggested or offered up for our preparation. It comes from uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 18. And I'm only going to take a portion of that. The theme is very short, and the scripture which I choose to use here is going to be equally Uh, concise as well. There is no fear in love, for perfect love casteth out fear.
On June 5th of 1776, the Second Continental Congress of the 13 colonies convened their assembly to discuss important matters that faced the citizens of these colonies. Among those matters that needed to be addressed and of utmost importance was the relationship between the colonies, which were considered, uh, were still considered uh, citizens of the British Empire, uh, whether they would uh, continue to appeal their, their cause before the British crown or whether they would choose to separate. And we're familiar in history of the events leading up to this uh, important session of early Congress. We know that the early citizens of the colonies were taxed heavily. The charters which were established within between Britain and the, and the colonies were being violated. There was a loss of, of privacy and property rights. There was many things that had um, disturbed them and, and burdened them. And, of course, we know in our history that this led up to uh, some expressions of, of frustration and perhaps uh, by the British to be considered rebellion. The Boston Tea Party was one of those events and eventually escalated into some small battles of, of Lexington and Concord. And this is a setting coming into this, uh, this early assembly also, in the most recent months, uh, Thomas Paine had issued uh, the very um, influential book entitled Common Sense, which really inspired the citizens of these colonies and uh, swayed their hearts more towards the idea of accepting separation as a, a viable option. So, as the delegates of this this Congress came together to discuss these mat matters. There was one, Richard Henry Lee, who made the motion and crafted the resolution that the Congress consider separation as the route forward uh, for this, um, this early, early beginnings of a nation. And that was the general sentiment of the, the assembly there and each one there knew what that would, would mean. And because of the serious nature of that resolution and declaration, the Congress recessed for about three weeks so that all the delegates, the representatives, could go back to their states to ensure that they had time to deliberate on this and ensure that this was the, the proper course of action. Now, during those three weeks, there was a committee appointed to craft a more refined resolution or declaration to express the sentiments of the citizens of these, these colonies. And Thomas Jefferson was one of those appointed to that committee. Benjamin Franklin also appoints the committee and three others. It fell upon Thomas Jefferson to, to carry the burden of drafting the majority of that uh, that declaration or proclamation that we, of course, have known now as the Declaration of Independence. So after the recess, the delegates came back to the to uh, the assembly and the convention there at the Pennsylvania State House, and they decided to take up this matter once again. Jefferson, having um, written out and provided 
uh, an eloquent declaration of this, this cause and expression of the people to declare their independence from Great Britain. The declaration was, was crafted with at least three audiences in mind. The obvious is King George, to whom it would be delivered, but also to the citizens of the colonies to continue to rally for their support behind this cause. For we know in our history that not everyone was on board uh, with this idea. It's a very um, fearful thing that would come because of this. There's many loyalists. In fact, at one time, there was about a third of the colonists were uh, considered loyalists to the crown. And if this shifted a little bit, especially after uh, Payne had published his, his booklet on, on common sense. And the third audience would be for foreign nations to know that these colonies will no longer be subject only to the British crown, but they will decide for themselves. They will enact treaties and trade agreements and conduct themselves as any other nation. They're open for business. And so there's a lot that is, uh, that is to be communicated in this Declaration of Independence. And every one of those men, 56, would eventually uh, sign the document, knew what the consequences of this decision would be. At the time, the British Empire was the, the largest superpower on the face of the earth. The colonies, if they were to go to war with them, which really, um, this is what it meant. And this is why this document could be considered one of the most dangerous documents of American history. is because, in essence, it was a declaration of war. It was a war against, against the British Empire, as I mentioned, a, a superpower on the face of the earth. It was a war against their own citizenry. It's a, it entailed a civil war. And the odds were really stacked against the citizens of these colonies. Of course, they were outnumbered, outsoldiered. Their, the army that they did have, the Continental Army, uh, was really newly born. It did not uh, have the experience and the expertise that the, the British did. Uh, the Americans, the colonists at this time, would really had no navy to speak of. Of course, uh, the British Empire had uh, the best navy in the world. They lacked the weapons. They lacked a centralized leadership and form of government to really lead them through this cause. Also, a uh, significant uh, background issue was that of slavery and what that would mean and what would happen because of that. And not all the delegates were on board with, with everything that was decided in this declaration. So my point in bringing out all these things to you is to share that there was a lot to fear because signing this, this declaration meant that they were committing treason to the, British, um, to the British crown, to King George. And for committing treason, if captured, they could be um, and would be hung in the public square and quartered their families would, would definitely be endangered. Most likely they would lose um, much or all of their, their personal possessions, their houses. A lot of these, uh, these congressmen were fairly wealthy. And so they had a lot to lose materially. And they also knew that their sons would go to war. So there's a lot of things to be fearful of. When we look back in history, 
we know the outcome of this, but have we put ourselves um, in their position at that point in time, um, the future would be greatly uncertain, but for sure the odds were completely stacked against them. Again, there was a lot to fear. What is it about these men that caused them to face those fears with resolution? What caused them to consider the loss of perhaps their lives to which they um, pledged their lives, their fortune, their sacred honors? What is it that drives a man to face these incredible odds and risk losing his life? I would suggest to you it is love. Love of freedom, love of liberty, love of self-determination. And while these aren't the perfect love that we read about by the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4, nevertheless, they are virtuous things that God has blessed man with, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But it was this love of country that caused these men to face these fears. I have uh, two objectives this evening. The first is to expound on how love is foundational to faith and how that cast out fear. And the second is to encourage you and then challenge you to grow and expand your love in Jesus Christ so that there is no room for fear. So to begin, I'd like to uh, perhaps go over a few few concepts about this perfect love. Not all love is perfect. Men love many things. We can set our hearts upon material things. We can set our hearts upon eternal things. And if we look at the the definition of of perfect, when we go to the Greek, the Greek word is teleo, and it means to be whole or complete, to have an end. So this gives us the beginning, uh, some understanding of this perfect love that is talked about by the Apostle John. And Moroni, who quotes Mormon in the seventh chapter of the book of Moroni, also gives us another uh, name by which we can call this perfect love, perfect love, and that is charity. And his definition of charity is that it is the pure love of Jesus Christ, and it endureth forever. This is that perfect love. Now, there's a few elements that make love perfect. And we can go back to John and see what a couple of those, uh, the first John chapter 4, and see what a couple of those elements are. In first John 4, verse 12, it says, No man has seen God at any time except them who believe. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. And we have known and believed that the love that God hath to us, God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. So we know that God is love. The scriptures bear this out pretty, pretty clearly. And another thing that we can take assurance in comes from Romans chapter 8. There's a beautiful ending to this chapter says, who can separate us from the love of God? Not life, not death, not principalities, not powers, not angels, all these things. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that in and of itself can give us confidence and faith 
that his love to us is sure. So there's two elements here. They're important to know. God is love. It is the nature of who he is. And that love, love comes out of him. <laughs> it's shown forth from him. It's in everything he does is motivated, motivated by love because he is love. And another aspect of this perfect love is what we read there in the 12th and 16th verse is that we must love one another. So God is love. His love is perfect to us. It is always um, projected to us. We need to receive that love and respond in love to him, and we need to love one another. All these combined are what perfect love is. There was a a little verse that I ran across a couple years ago that really intrigued me when I was studying a similar similar topic. And it comes from Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. And part of that... uh, Part of that verse says, says this, and it's talking about the old law and the new law, and it says, faith which worketh by love. And I thought that was pretty interesting, because faith itself is a very fundamental concept. It's what causes us to um, draw closer to God, to believe on him, to become like him. But love is very fundamental also. And so I was curious, how do these two relate to each other, and how do they work, and which one is is supreme, and how how does that work? And we know from writings of Paul and also Moroni that faith, hope, and charity—the greatest of these—is charity. So love, perfect love, or charity reigns supreme in this. I think we can look at it like this: that love is like the the catalyst or the motivating force that drives us to something. Love is like the desire before the action, and the faith being the action. But preceding that, there has to be a desire, something that spurns us in a direction. And I would uh, propose to you that 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 primary motivator is love and should always be love. Love that is recognized and experienced with, with others and with God himself When we come into circumstances, whether it's in worship, it's in personal contact with someone, when we experience love in some degree, that love requires some response of us. As beings that God has created in his image, there's something that that stimulates us to respond in some way. Now, we have our agency and we can shut him out, or hopefully we respond, respond with love. But either way... If we respond positively, it would lead us in a, in a direction, in a course that would cause us to draw closer to God, which often happens in prayer, in study, in worship, in service, in acts of kindness, many other ways in which love can propel us into faith-building acts. And so we see how, in this case, how, how love is fundamental to faith. And I like a particular verse of scripture that comes from 3 Nephi chapter 12, verse 26. And my father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross, and after that I had been lifted up upon the cross, I might draw all men to me. This is 
the moving force, the greatest expression of love was performed on the cross by our Savior. And that is what, what draws us draws us to him. And so when you consider that and consider the mode of our worship and, and uh, schedule of our worship where we come together at least once a month and partake of the emblems of Christ's body, where specifically we are reminded to remember that he was lifted on a cross and gave himself for us. This is to keep us in this, this path of love so we would not forget. And so as we do this and as we are reminded of his love, it can't help but stir us within, within our souls, to respond in some way in obedience, in love for one another, hopefully. This is some of the greatest intentions, I believe, of the sacrament service that we participate in. Now, interesting thing, too, is love is very reciprocal of faith. And I'd like to give you a little illustration of that. We're familiar with the story of Enos in the Book of Mormon. And we know that it's an excellent chapter on describing, um, describing the faith that Enos had as he had that experience while he was out praying. But there was something that stimulated Enos to pray to begin with. And in the beginning of that chapter, he reflects on the godly attributes of his father and the joy of the saints. You can tell just by reading, even though it doesn't explicitly say, that there's this love and desire in Enos' heart towards God that leads him to this expression of faith where he goes and he's in the forest and he kneels on the ground and he's praying all the night long. The act of prayer is an expression of faith, but love is what stimulated Enos to go there to begin with. And we know in this, uh, this beautiful account of his story that he had this great curiosity upon his mind that caused him to pray like all throughout the day and into the, into the evening. And he wanted to know his standing before God. And after many hours, the Lord spoke to him and told him his, his sins were forgiven. And Enos' prayer was answered. But I like what it, it goes on to say after he uh, was made aware of his salvation with the Lord and his standing with the Lord. It says, Now it came to pass, is verse 12, that when I had heard these words, I began to feel a desire for the welfare of my brother. So love prompts faith, which then perpetuates even more love that extends out and grows to those of his brethren, the Nephites. And as this beautiful account unfolds, it didn't stop there. So he continues to pray and he continues to struggle. And his heart is then turned to the Lamanites, who would be enemies to them, and his love for them, to pray for your enemies. So his heart then is extended to, uh, to the Lamanites, and it doesn't stop there. It goes on, he continues to struggle and pray, he's exercising his faith, and then his heart is stirred for the future generations of those who would receive his records. So his heart expands not only from his God, but to that of his brethren, to his enemies, or to the Lamanites, and to future generations that would uh, inherit their word. I think it's just a, a beautiful way of seeing how 
the love of God and love and, and faith together can work together and bring us into a, a state of, of, uh, of sanctification and to grow and expand our faith and love both. I'd like to uh, take just a minute to also look at the other side of this on fear. Our theme is fear not, so I just want to spend just a few moments on that. And fear is something that we can all identify with. Fear is an instrument that the devil uses to destroy mankind and to bring uh, misery and destruction. There are natural fears which are designed and good for our preservation. The fear of heights, the fear of objects that move really fast towards you, the fear of perhaps drowning, the fear of big animals with sharp teeth. These are things that are just uh, part of our nature. You don't have to teach a two-year-old that great white shark, you shouldn't go there. There's something about us that already knows that 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 is dangerous. There are many other kinds of fears, perhaps social fears, the fear of, of speaking before others, the fear of death, the fear of not being in control, the fear of uncertainty, the fear of change. And sometimes these fears um, might be known also as anxiousness or worriedness. And I think all of us can, at some level, identify with some, some type of uh, a level of fear. What are, what are your fears? Think about that. And also think about what the love of Christ can do in your life to strengthen your faith and cast out those fears. I want to share some personal testimony, the remainder here of this evening. And this might sound silly to, uh, to some or many here, but when I was young, um, I had this, this dread, this beyond fear of public speaking. And as any good um, school should do, they have a speech class. And for me, that was about my sophomore year of high school. I dreaded that class. I did not want to be there. I wanted to be the guy that always kind of melted in the background. Uh, Just something about being in front of people, saying anything, just scared me to death. And so uh, that day came when everyone had to take their turn. The teachers were very uh, easy on us, I think, from what I can remember. And when you're in a state of fear, you can remember things for a very, very long time. But what I remember that day, I can remember the whole room, what it looked like, about how many people were there, um, is that we had these index cards. And you're just supposed to go up and give this little talk, just reading straight from your index cards. Should be be an easy thing. So I remember going up there in front of the class, probably 25 students or so. And it shouldn't be that hard just to read. But when your hand is going like this, it is really hard to read that card. I remember going, ah. <laughs> I had to hold this hand so I could hold this steady and read, uh, read the speech. I hated that. Um, looking back in hindsight, that's probably the best class school should offer, too. <laughs> it is very necessary to help, help people confront their fears in, at a very early age. So I knew there, would, there was going to have to be more occasions by, of, of speaking in front of people. And college was, was one of those, and there was a speech class required in college, and it was not quite nearly as bad by that point in time, but it was still nothing I looked forward to. And other, um, 
um, opportunities at college uh, would place you in front of other people to, to speak. Well, it was so bad for me. By the time I graduated from college, so I'm 21 years old, I remember my, my family gathered down to, uh, um, to Grain Valley, Missouri, and we attended the Oak Grove Restoration Branch, and I went there in, in the summers. And I remember being in the prayer service on Wednesday nights, and I wanted to pray, but I couldn't muster the strength <laughs> to pray as a 21-year-old in the prayer service of, of the saints. And that would be the most forgiving audience, the for, most forgiving body of people that you could pray among. And a large part of my fear was what others might think, or i get up there and forget what I want to say. And so I'd sit there during the whole prayer time and, and mull in my mind, what do I want to say, and this is how I want to say it. And my focus was really wrong. I should have been focused on just the Lord and I, and these people are just happened to be in the background somewhere. And it should have been like that, but fear had such a grip on me, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with that. And so uh, for most of my, my summers there, I didn't offer a prayer. And prayer actually, I did. I did internally, <laughs> but not, not outwardly. But anyway, um, there came a point in which I had to reckon with myself. I basically said to myself, if I love him, I must trust him. It's as simple as that. If I love him, I must trust him. And so, as I said, fear of uh, public speaking is a great weakness for me. And there's a passage of scripture that really gave me a lot of comfort, and I think is very insightful, and it comes from Ether 528. And I've shared this in, in many settings before because it perhaps is so meaningful and it can be uh, used in so many different settings. But Ether 528 says, I give unto men weaknesses that they might be humble." Have you ever considered if fear is one of your weaknesses? There could be a good purpose for that. It's to bring about humility. And it did for me. It had that, <laughs> had that effect on me. I felt like I was nothing. I was less than the dust of the earth. I couldn't even say a prayer. 21 years old in church. I give unto men weaknesses that they might be humble. So there's purpose. And we recognize our weaknesses. And my grace is sufficient for all men who humble themselves before me and have faith in me. That is a beautiful promise. My grace is sufficient. He will enable you to overcome your weaknesses by his grace and mercy. My grace is sufficient for those who humble themselves before me. Now, the nature of man is is, uh, often that he doesn't choose to humble himself before him. He needs to be humbled. But we know it's better to humble oneself. And so to do that, one has to be of a mind to be motivated to do that. And I would go back and suggest once again that love is that motivating force that would even drive one to humble themselves in act of faith before their creator. So if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, the promise is that I will make weak things become strong unto them. And so... That passage of scripture has given me great comfort, and I have a long way to go in that regard. But I know this, I'm not sitting here shaking my, my hand, trying to hold my <laughs> notes together. The Lord has given me liberty as he's caused me through life to uh, force this, or to face this, this weakness of fear that I had early on in my life. I'd like to share another uh, testimony. It also goes back to high school. The other fear I had was... Um, the fear of man. Not necessarily being beat up, 
or uh, injured in some way, but to uh, comply to the social norm that expected certain uh, conditions and activities that would uh, enable you to be accepted into the group. As we know in school, a lot of times it can be a very uh, cliquish environment, and you're young and you're just trying to figure yourself out and where where you really belong and who your friends are going to be and all these things. But I feared not having acceptance. I didn't want to be lonely. I needed uh, peers. I was motivated towards people and friends. And so um, so that got the, the better of me because my friends didn't always have, you know, the set of standards that our family did. And I had good friends, but nevertheless, it was, it was still just a worldly, worldly environment. And so that led me to doing, making many foolish decisions in my life, which I uh, regretted later on and had to repent of. But it was because of fear that I gave in to, uh, to man, the fear of man that caused, that contributed because of my weakness uh, in that way to, um, to living up to the, what, what they think should be an acceptable behavior. You know, I really like, we all, I believe, love this passage of, a storyline in the Book of Mormon with uh, Nephi's vision, the tree of life. We're familiar with that story. The iron rod that leads to the, um, to the tree whose beautiful fruit represents the love of God. And it amazes me that, that and it shouldn't amaze me, that there were those who made it uh, to that tree and partook of the fruit. They experienced God's love. But yet the great and spacious building was on uh, that other side or a distance from them. And they could tell that the people in that building were mocking them and scorning them and pointing their finger at them. And they felt ashamed. I would speculate that there would be two reasons that would tempt a person to uh, succumb to that type of, of scorn and mocking. One is that even though they had tasted of the love of God, they hadn't uh, completely uh, removed from their, their own desires the things of the world that attracted their attention and that could please them in more uh, carnal and material ways. And the other is that they feared the people mocking them, this great and spacious building and have all these beautiful things and having so much fun and we're at this tree, you know, partaking of this quiet but powerful uh, love of God. And so I would say that, that in many ways, they, they gave, there was certain individuals that gave in to their fears, and they left. They left the tree and, and uh, tried to join those from the great and spacious building, which is the pride of the world. And that is a really sad thing. And it makes you wonder, how could you taste the love of God and yet still choose to go this direction? And I would say that the measure of love that they had and experienced um, was not sufficient. There's sufficiency in the love of God, for sure. Don't get me wrong. But there was something that continued to to tempt them there. And I think um, a good passage of Scripture to to consider here also comes from 1 John chapter 2. It says this. It says, Love not the world, neither the things that are of the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
And so there's still this love of the world and worldly things. And I think this is where our opportunity is as saints in that we love God. And just like we would love our spouse, you know, the measure of our love can be gauged by how much time and energy and resources and priorities we we make of it. And so while I might profess to love my wife, if I don't spend time with her, if I come home from work and I spend that time just surfing on the Internet every day or I go out and do things that just uh, please myself and, and serve self, and I don't spend time with her, yet I profess to, to love her, my, my love is not whole. I do love her, but there's degrees of this. And there's not sufficient love within myself that would propel me to and cause me to make choices that would spend more time and give more time with her. And I think largely this is where we stand with the Lord also. We profess a love. And we have faith. You know, the mind has acknowledged has acknowledged that, that God is our creator and our savior. We, we follow after him. We believe him. We believe he can do all things. And when we encounter situations which try our faith, we mentally acknowledge that, that, that he has power to, to, to bless and to overcome those situations. But I wonder if the heart aspect of faith is really up to the challenge. Is the love there sufficiently that we, like Enos, could could stay and pray all day to obtain an answer? And I think that's an area of opportunity that that we have to consider because there's so many things of the world that that tempt us and cause us to um, um, make the wrong priorities when we could be giving more of our time and, and energy to the Lord. So we have to decide how much of the world we're going to love and how much we give to the Lord. I'd like to share one more testimony with you. And um, this also goes back a few years. 1995 is the summer of 1995. And I had been in my career job for about about uh, four years. And I had this life dream to, to travel the country and see the world. And... I wasn't married or engaged. I was out of debt. I figured, well, now or never. This is this is the time. And so I had uh, had this dream of, of buying this motorhome and a trailer for my motorcycle. I was going to travel travel the country and visit the saints all over the all over the the country. And that's a whole other uh, story and lots of testimonies from that. But what came of that? I found myself at a reunion in Montana, a beautiful setting the edge of this, this great mountain. I met new people. There's people from Independence up there, but also from the Dakotas and from Washington and Montana. Anyway, I met a man, and during the, the course of the week, his, his father had died. It was a great tragedy while he was there at reunion. I was a, a newly ordained teacher in the priesthood. I preached one sermon, and I was up there. And, and while we were up there, um, he kind of told me he, we knew enough about each other there that he asked me, and he was a pastor of a, of a branch in the state of Washington, and he asked me if I could preach at his branch that Sunday following reunion. The reunion ended on a, on a Saturday. I said, sure, however I, can, however I can help. So as the reunion came to a conclusion, I traveled out there. I got out there on a, like a Saturday, Saturday early evening, 
I met these other people that attended his branch and um, made arrangements where there's a family I was going to stay in their uh, park my motor home in their in their driveway. And so, so I made it um, to their house. I had a lot of time to contemplate, but not really prepare for the sermon. And being newly ordained, I was pretty nervous about that preaching the next day, and I really don't <laughs> have anything to go with. And and so, um, so I remember. Um, going inside to visit with um, these ladies, and then there seemed like there were some grown children or some others there. I can't remember how many. So I visited with them for quite a while. And um, uh, the lady that lived there, she told me that her husband wasn't there. And she it was kind of awkward. She told me that he belonged to the occult. And that evening he was gone to these seance meetings, which is pretty, pretty heavy down into uh, devil worship, quite frankly. So I was a little shocked by that. I thought that was a very mixed marriage. And so um, anyway, time came and, and some of the people left and I was going to go out to my motor home to uh, start getting pencil on, on paper to, to get some sermon notes down. So while I was, was out there and I just started to study, I heard a car pull in and it was, it was probably late, well, it was probably about nine o'clock in the evening or so. I heard this car pull in, and I heard the, the door open, and I heard someone walk to the front door. I assume it was the husband that was coming back from these from these meetings. So I heard the door open and close and didn't really think too much of it. But right after that, I remember hearing these footsteps around my motorhome. And this was an old beat-up motorhome, very small, small one. It was pretty sketchy. Um, so I, I remember hearing these footsteps, and I thought, yeah, this is, this is curious. And I thought, well, maybe there's this is a suburban setting, and I thought maybe there's these uh, young people in the neighborhood, maybe they're going to just prank me or something, and they're walking around. And so I started to build up a, a little bit of anxiety at this point in time, and so I remember kind of pulling the curtain open a little bit and looking out because I want to see who keeps walking really slowly around the motor, and I couldn't see anybody, and I know they circled uh, two or three times around the motorhome. Well, I could see nobody. And so I was starting to get creeped out by that a little bit more, and I thought, all right, it's time to look for some blunt object in here in case I need to <laughs> use that in case they're going to do something to me. So as soon as I, I thought about trying to find some, some, some that could be used as a weapon of defense, the Lord placed in my mind not necessarily a very reassuring thought, but nevertheless it was, it was information and knowledge. That the sounds I were hearing were not of a temporal nature, but of a spiritual uh, wickedness. And so there was some evil spirit that was walking around my motorhome like a lion set to devour, is how I thought of it. So right then and there, I knew there's nothing I can do about this in any physical kind of, kind of way. And knowing that, my level of fear was probably at dread, right? <laughs> dread level right now. And then, as this all happened in a pretty short amount of moments, uh, the next thing I knew was happening was something was jerking on the, the door handle of my my vehicle, like, trying to get in. I could hear the button pushing. I could feel the motorhome swaying just a little bit as it, whatever that thing was uh, jerked on the handle. 
And the only thing I knew to do at that moment was just to cry out to my God. And it was a short prayer. Lord, please help me. And in that moment, when I offered that prayer, the Spirit of God came down and flooded my being with love and peace that completely set my mind and body at peace. There's nothing else that could do that at that moment. And so whatever that was, that evil spirit stopped jerking on my my door of my motor home, and it, it ended right there. And God came and and uh, allowed me to experience his, his great and merciful love. And sometimes that's about the only kind of prayer you can do when faced in, in certain circumstances. But not only for that moment, he blessed me with that love through the rest of the night. So within about a minute or two, I just picked up my scriptures and started going through my notes again because the power of that love continued to reside in me. Otherwise, I'd be up all night like, when's it coming back? <laughs> I barely escaped that one. You know, there's a lot to, uh, lot that could have been a uh, further concern there. And you know, in, in section 22 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and I see I'm going to be running short on time if I go too far into this, it's a beautiful revelation given to Joseph. It's in my top ten. I don't know where section 22 falls in your list, but it's right up there for me. And the part that, that I appreciate for this setting, to me it's not even the best part, but it's a really good one, begins in verse 8. And we know in this setting of this revelation that, that Moses was taken up to a mount to be with God. And God would show it and teach him things. And this wasn't the, the same mount. It was a different mount uh, where the Lord appeared to him in, in the burning bush. It was a different one. Maybe I'll go ahead and read this. I think I will. Verse, starting in verse 8, 8 through 13. So the setting of this is that the Lord is speaking to Moses. And the Lord pours out his glory upon Moses. And then he withholds that glory for a moment. And this was a teaching experiment. This, this was a teaching lesson for Moses. That he understood that man was nothing. So anyway, he's, he's left in this state of of weakness, the Lord having withdrawn almost all his, his glory from him. It says, Now it came to pass that when Moses had said these words, behold, Satan came tempting him, saying, Moses, son of man, worship me. And it came to pass that Moses looked upon Satan and said, Who art thou? For behold, I am a son of God, in the similitude of his only begotten. And where is thy glory that I should worship thee? For behold, I could not look upon God except his glory should come upon me. And I were transfigured before him, but I can look upon thee in the natural man. Is it not surely so? So surely? Blessed be the name of my God, for his spirit hath not altogether withdrawn from me. Or else where is thy glory? For it is darkness unto me, and I can judge between thee and God. For God said unto me, Worship God, and him only shalt thou serve. Get thee hence, Satan, serve me not. For God hath said unto me, Thou art after the similitude of mine only begotten. And he also gave unto me commandments, where he called unto me out of the burning bush, saying, Call upon God in the name of mine only begotten, and worship me. And again, Moses said, I will not cease to call upon God. I have other things to inquire of him, for his glory has been upon me. And it is glory unto me, wherefore I can judge between him and thee. Depart, Satan. 
And now when Moses had said these words, Satan cried with a loud voice and went upon the earth and commanded, saying, I am the only begotten, worship me. And it came to pass that Moses began to fear exceedingly. And as he began to fear, he saw the bitterness of hell. Nevertheless, calling upon God, he received strength and he commanded, saying, Depart hence, Satan, for this one God only will I worship, which is the God of glory. There's several lessons that we can learn from this very uh, short passage of Scripture. And I'd like to just highlight a few of those for you. When is it that Satan comes in this story to, uh, to attack Moses in this spiritual way? When is it? It's in his time of weakness. When does the devil try to take advantage of us in our times of weakness? My children and I really like Wild King, Mutual of Omaha, Wild Kingdom videos, the old ones, right? You see all these occasions where the lions are out trying to hunt something, attack something. And most often, it's the weak ones they go after. It's the little ones, the maimed ones, and the ones that separate from the herd. These are the ones Satan goes after. Think about that in spiritual terms. But Satan goes after, after us when we're weak. This is something that we should be acutely aware of. Another thing that we can take from this is that Moses understands that there is not sufficient strength within himself. He appeals unto his relationship with his Lord as the source of his strength. He says, I am a son of God. This is what gives us courage and boldness and confidence, knowing that our strength is nothing and his strength is all-powerful and divine. Another thing that Moses does and that we can take from this is that we need to discern between good and evil, discern between light and darkness. And Moses calls the devil out on this. He says, I couldn't behold the glory, um, the Lord's glory unless it was, behold the Lord unless his glory was upon me, but I can uh, see you here in, in this flesh. And so we need to be a discerning people and know our weaknesses, know and understand when it is the devil uh, desires to prey upon us, to know our natural weaknesses, the natural man, and what um, those things that we need to, to overcome. We need to know what, what is this spirit leading us to? Is it enticing us to good or is it enticing us, enticing us to evil? Another thing uh, Moses does, he exercises great boldness. Get thee hence, Satan. And so we, if we have that sufficient love, which is established and, and built up our faith, we can declare with boldness, get thee hence, Satan, and we can face our fears. We don't like to face our fears. We tend to naturally want to avoid them, but sometimes we just have to face them. And it's better yet if we even uh, put ourselves in places where we have to, have to confront them and trust upon the Lord. What was another thing Moses did? He called upon the Lord. Prayer is our, is our great weapon, is our tool to be used. He called upon the Lord, and the Lord gave him strength in that, that situation. So love is bold, and prayer is key. And living a life that invites the Holy Spirit, so that Spirit uh, dwells in us, gives us power over uh, the, the devil and the temptations of the world, and the fear is your weakness. It gives you power over those, those fears as well. 
I'd like to conclude, conclude with the, these few, few remarks. One, uh, the perfect love of Jesus Christ is the answer to fear. Just as John says, perfect love casteth out fear. Heed not the voices of the world. Do not fear what others think. We're living in a, a time and place in which those voices are becoming really loud and more disagreeable with what we believe to be true and right. So give no heed to those those voices, but continue to feast upon the love of Christ. And lastly, uh, declare, declare this day as your day of independence from fear. And let that perfect love cast out all fear. very fortunate to have a wonderful piano player for the night, and I'd like to change our closing hymn to number 325. 325, more love to thee, O Christ, and we'll stand for that, after which our uh, brother Luke will bring the benediction, and uh, then I would ask you to remain seated after the benediction. We have some announcement, I'm sure. So, uh, thank you. Number 325.
Our dear God in heaven, Lord, I come to you now at the close of this thy service that you uh, have illustrated to us, Lord, and I would uh, thank you for uh, the words of encouragement and direction that you have given to us through your servant that had prepared this for us. I would pray that we would uh, be able to put it into our lives, Lord, uh, the love and the faith that uh, each and every one of us uh, can find and can use to avoid thy darkness, Lord, that we could come into the light that we have spoken about today in many settings. And I'd pray, Lord, that if there'd be anybody in this uh, tabernacle that you have brought in, if they'd be in the darkness, Lord, that they would uh, be able to feel the love the love of the people that have joined here so that they can find the light, Lord, that you would guide and direct their life, that all it would take is a little bit of faith and the love of those around them to fight the adversary and to begin the light that you can give us. Once again, Lord, I would thank you for this beautiful day and continue to bless us with safety as we walk the grounds and we... Uh, uh, some of us leave and some of us uh, venture out to enjoy the beauty that you uh, have created for this uh, wonderful time of year. Pray that you would give us safety and peace and rest, that we'd be able to wake up tomorrow and feel thy love that is in this house right now, that it would uh, be in our, uh, our hearts and our minds in all the days to come. We pray these things in your most precious name. Amen.